we, we had over 300 uh, kids each night at Vacation Bible School. They had a lot of fun, and, uh, and we're praying that God will just take what they've learned and really uh, uh, sink it into their hearts and their lives. Also, isn't it great showing up today and seeing the progress on our new auditorium? Pretty exciting, pretty exciting just to see, uh, to see that progress being made. And just keep praying that God will... Uh, move the process along and take us closer to the, the time when we get to uh, occupy uh, that new space that he has for us. Well, I'm going to start uh, by just saying happy Father's Day uh, to all of the dads that are here. Happy Father's Day uh, to all of the, the fathers who work so hard uh, to make us what we are today. And we just want to honor you today and thank God for you. And for those of you who are here, and this is some of us, uh, mourning the loss of a father, or maybe uh, mourning the loss of a father in your life in terms of his absence, uh, we just want to say to you, we grieve with you and we support you. Uh, to the dads who are here today and maybe you're weary from long hours commuting to support your family, uh, to those of you dads who are right now like up to your armpits in dirty diapers and dance recitals and uh, chauffeuring kids to Little League baseball and softball games, well, we just want to say that we salute you and we're thankful for you. And I hope that all of us today will remember uh, that our God is the father to the fatherless, that he is where we learn how to be good dads. And if we missed out on having a good earthly dad, then he is where we find out uh, what the greatest dad of all is really like, the most loving dad, who can supply all that we lack and fulfill all of our needs. Well, if you'll open your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 27, we're going to begin our study today. And if you're a dad, you have probably had a bad day or two somewhere in your life, right? Can I just take a check and see anybody had a bad day ever? Uh, everyone has had their share of bad days, but I suspect that most of us probably haven't had one like this guy who was filling out a workplace accident report for an insurance company. He was a bricklayer, and here's what he wrote. Dear sir, I am writing in response to your request for additional information. In block three of the accident reporting form, I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said I should explain more. I trust the following details are sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. <laughs> you will note in block 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 180 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. 
This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of the pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. The barrel now weighed about 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block 11. I began a rapid descent. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and lacerations on my lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks and fortunately only fractured three vertebrae. I am sorry to report that as I lay on the bricks in pain, unable to move, looking up at the barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and I let go of the rope. Now that's a bad day, right? Well, what I want you to think about is that when we encounter the Apostle Paul in Acts 27, he's been having a bad two years. Now remember the last few chapters of Acts that we've been studying over the last few weeks? See, all Paul wanted to do was fulfill the call that God had given on his life to take the gospel to Rome. And so in Acts 21, he had gone to Jerusalem. He was just going to bless some Jewish Christians with a gift from the Gentile Christians. But he gets beaten up by a mob. He gets thrown into prison. And he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. But they put him on trial anyway. And then at the trial, he almost gets killed again. And then after the trial, 40 men make a plan to assassinate him. And the Roman soldiers have to take him away by night to Caesarea to save his life. In Caesarea, he gets put in prison again. He still hasn't done anything, and he ends up being left in prison for two years. So in Acts 27, when we pick the story up again, Paul is finally starting his journey to Rome. But as we're going to see today, he's going to get caught up in this massive storm in the ocean. We're going to see Paul almost drown out on the ocean. He's not going to eat for two weeks. He's going to have soldiers on the ship that want to kill him. He's going to have to jump overboard and swim to land. And when he gets to land, he's going to get bitten by a snake. How many of you are saying, I think I could handle all of this until I got to that snake part right now? He's literally and figuratively snake bit, right? Now, how many of you, I think, at this point would be saying, you know, who do I write, you know, the letter of resignation to? Is it to Father or Son or Holy Spirit? Because I want off. I want out. I mean, how does Paul keep going? How does he keep serving? Well, Paul keeps going. He keeps serving because he believed that God was faithful, even in life's storms. And as we work our way through Acts 27 and into Acts 28 today, what we need to see is this. We can trust God's faithfulness even when we go through life storms. I'm wondering how many of us really, really need to hear this today. Well, if you do, you're going to hear and see four ways that we can trust God's faithfulness. Here's the first one. You can write this down on your message notes. Uh, Trust God in life's ups and downs. Now remember uh, that Paul is in Caesarea. He's being sent to Rome because he has appealed to Caesar. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 27, Luke writes these words. 
when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail four ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. I want you to notice a couple of things. The, the we here in verse 1 is very important. You're going to see in Acts 27 all this incredibly vivid detail. And the reason is this. Luke, the author, is on the boat. He's with Paul. He's an eyewitness to everything we're going to read today. We also, in these verses, meet two other important characters. Uh, Julius the centurion. He's going to play a significant role in the drama to come. He's very friendly and supportive of Paul, as you're going to see. And then there's Aristarchus. This is a name we've seen before. We saw him, met him in Ephesus when he was seized, when the people began rioting because Paul was preaching the gospel. Paul was preaching against idolatry. In Colossians 4, Paul calls Aristarchus my fellow prisoner. And so this means that Paul has with him on this journey two friends and a sympathetic government official. So things are looking kind of good at this point. Verse 3 says, The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. That's good. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. That's not so good. Verse 5, When we had sailed across the open sea off of the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And so Paul's experiencing some good and some bad, some ups and downs. Julius is kind to him. He lets him see his friends. But when they set sail again, the winds are against them. That's not good. Luke says they sail to the lee of Cyprus. That means they are letting the, the, the island, the land mass that is there, protect them from the winds. And that means the winds at this time are blowing from west east. And here's a map that shows you their progress. Maybe you can get a picture in your mind of where they are. And they sail to Myra, and as they, they get to this port, uh, they change ships. Verses 6 through 8 say, There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. And so it's kind of heading down now. The journey continues to be difficult. The winds are still against them. They can't hold the course that they want to take. I mean, it's just life. It's up sometimes, it's down sometimes. Will we keep trusting God? When they get to Fair Havens, they're going to have a huge decision to make because they are now in the fall season. Look at verse 9 through 12. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. And here's another map showing you where they are now. 
And here's what's gone on. It, it took them so long to get to this stage of the journey to get to Crete that everyone on the ship knows they cannot try to make it all the way to Rome now. Luke says that it is after the fast. That's the Day of Atonement. It's probably somewhere during the first week of the month of October. Now you say, well, why does that matter? Well, back then, once you got past September, uh, sea travel started getting really iffy. And between November to March, it was too dangerous to sail. And so this means in early October, they're kind of in that gray area. Well, they decide we're going to go for it. They don't listen to Paul, who is a seasoned traveler. They think, you know what, this harbor in Fairhaven's is not safe enough. There is a better one in Phoenix. It's only 40 miles away. Let's go for it. This is sort of like when you're playing golf and you make the classic mistake. You say to yourself, I think I can clear the water. <laughs> no, you should lay up because you're not Dustin Johnson. You're not Jordan Spieth. Now, when I play golf, I always lay up and then I hit it into the water. I can... <laughs> See, go in better that way. It's like, so they make this bad decision. Verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. A ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. This wind was a violent wind. The NIV translates it a hurricane force wind. Uh, the Greek word here is typhonikos, which we get our word typhoon from. This wind, this violent, uh, tempestuous wind comes barreling down over the mountains of Crete. It is buffeting the ship. Look what happens. Verse 16. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging... We finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, this is pretty interesting. They make a foolish choice. And then they try five things, literally everything that they know to save themselves. First, they haul the lifeboat on board. Second, they do what's called the frapping the vessel where they, they uh, put ropes under the hull to try to hold the ship together. Third, because they fear uh, the sandbars of Sirtis, it was this area of the sea along Africa's north coast. They lower the sea anchor to slow their progress down. It's kind of like a break. Fourth, on the following day, they start to jettison the cargo because of the storm. This is very serious because this cargo is where they were going to make their money. They're literally throwing their profit into the sea. Finally, on the third day of the storm, they start throwing off the ship's tackle and equipment. None of that helps because the storm keeps raging for another 11 days. They don't have the sun. They don't have the stars to guide them. They don't know where they are, and they end up giving up all hope. Now, this is the setting, the setting into which Paul is going to step, into which Paul is going to give some incredible godly leadership. He's going to demonstrate faith for us. 
And before I move on to that, I want to pause for a minute and point out a, a couple of things. The first thing I want to observe is about salvation. So this storm is a storm, and Luke is just giving us a historical account, but we have in this storm a sort of picture of what it means to come to faith in Christ. This storm is dominating them, and they have no hope. But what they do is what people everywhere today still do. They try to save themselves. They try to do everything they can, and it doesn't work. Finally, they give up, and then they see God move. In a similar way, salvation begins when we lose all hope of trying to save ourselves. Isn't that how you came to faith in Christ, if you know him? See, when we get to a place of surrender, when we finally accept we can't do it, we can't save ourselves, that is when we experience the great freedom of surrender and of of embracing truth. Let us be reminded today that the gospel does not call us to strive more or try harder to save ourselves. The gospel calls us to surrender. And you only surrender when you give up hope of saving yourself. And I, I bring that up because... I am sure that there is someone here today in the room right now, and this is where you are. This is where you need to be. You need to stop striving. You need to stop trying to earn favor with God. You need to simply accept the way God calls you to know him, and that is to receive the gift of his grace, faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And you can do that today. We're going to be having baptism next Sunday, and some of you who have trusted Christ, you need to take the first step of obedience, which is also a kind of surrender, and that is to be baptized as a sign of what God has done in your life. So we need to give up and surrender and trust God. The second point I want to make is on storms in general. And again, they're they're going through this storm because somebody made a foolish decision. Isn't it true many times? I mean, not always, but many times storms come into our lives because we made a foolish decision, right? How many of you have ever been in a storm and you know you were there because you did something stupid? Would you be willing to raise your hand? And we also look around at the same time and see the other people on your road that aren't telling the truth. Um, Now, later on, verse 21, Paul is going to say to these people, you didn't listen to me, and therefore, he says, you incurred this injury and loss. And it's interesting there, the word uh, there is kind of a play on words. Literally, Paul says, you gained this loss. And sometimes we do that. We face storms because we are foolish. But at the same time, don't miss something else. Paul also experienced this storm. And Paul was doing exactly what God called him to do. Paul was being obedient to God, following God's call to go to Rome and preach the gospel. We should also be reminded here that sometimes we experience storms precisely because we're following Jesus. Amen? See, if anyone tells you that following Jesus will ensure smooth sailing for the rest of your life, you'll never have a problem again, you can know they don't know how God works. And there are a lot of people who will try to tell you that. If you just follow God hard enough, if you just obey God thoroughly enough, he will take care of all the problems in your life. Here's my piece of advice to you if you hear someone say something like that. Don't listen to them about anything else. 
they're not speaking truth to you, even if they are on television, even if they make a lot of money, even if they write a lot of books. The Bible never says anything like that. It's a misrepresentation of God's word. It is not true. Jesus himself said to his followers, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. F.B. Meyer was a pastor about 100 years ago or so, and he had this incredible quote. He said, if I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I am on the right road. I wonder if anybody here needs to be reminded that the jolts you've been experiencing this week, they're just part of you following God faithfully and obediently. See, storms come in life even when we are obedient. They are part of our journey. The Apostle Paul, a few chapters ago, he said, through many tribulations we shall enter the kingdom of God. They are part of life's ups and, our, and life's downs, and we need to trust God. We trust God's faithfulness when things are good, and we trust God's faithfulness when, when things are bad, and that is what Paul is doing. He's on a boat, and everyone else is in chaos. Everyone else is giving hope. But one man in the midst of this raging storm is calm, has faith, is trusting God. Now, why is Paul like this? Why does Paul have this incredible strength? And we're about to see the answers, and the answers are this. Paul has some anchors to his faith, and these anchors are anchors we can have as well. We're going to see this in verses 21 to 26. Why don't you write down on your notes, number two, trust the anchors of faith God gives us. Verse 21 says, After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Again, remember, while Paul speaks these words, a storm is still raging, hurricane-force winds still blowing. It's dark, no sun, no stars. They don't know where they are. But in the midst of this storm, Paul has this amazing faith, and he has this because of some anchors that he was holding on to with his life. Here's the first of the four. It's the anchor of God's presence with us. In verse 23, Paul says, Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul was comforted by God's presence. Now, maybe you remember back in Acts 18 when he was in Corinth and the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, Paul, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And then later on in Acts chapter 23, He's in prison in Caesarea. And Luke tells us, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord stood 
near him. And now, here, we see this angel of God standing beside Paul. I I love this theme of standing in this chapter. Uh, Paul can stand boldly before the soldiers and fellow prisoners and say it's going to be okay because God's angel stood beside him and told him that one day he will stand boldly before Caesar and testify. See, God's presence is with him in the storm. And today we can still trust God's presence is with us also because Jesus said, I am with you always. Second, we see the anchor of God's ownership of us. Again, in verse 23, Paul says, an angel of the God whose I am, or you could more literally translate it, the God to whom I belong. This reminds us, if you are a child of God, you belong to God. Why don't you say right now, I belong to God. Just say it together. I belong to God. If you're his child, you belong to him. God takes care of his kids. It's an amazing promise that we can hold on to when the storm comes. See, we belong to God, the Bible says, because God bought us. Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians that we have been bought at a price. And that price was the precious blood of God's only son. He says, you are not your own. God owns you. You are his child. And if God gave the life of his only son to purchase you, don't you think he's going to take care of you? Don't you think he's going to protect you? Don't you know that there is nothing that will come to your life without first passing through God's hand? The anchor of God's ownership. Third, we see the anchor of God's worth to us. Again, in verse 23, an angel of the God whom I serve, or more literally, the God whom I worship. You know, we worship whatever is most valuable in our lives, whatever is our treasure. And Paul says, I serve and I worship this God, and I do it even in this storm. Here's something you need to understand. We will weather the storms in our lives as we cling to the fact that we have a treasure in God that will never fade, never be destroyed. And it is the treasure of our relationship with Jesus. Truth is, storms have a way of revealing to us what we really worship. You know that? Storms have a way of revealing to us what we really worship. Have you ever found yourself kind of like a, you're a basket case in a storm? I have. And when that happens, it's showing you something about your life, about your heart. It's showing you that you have put your hope in whatever it is that you feel is being threatened by this storm, whatever it is that you think this storm is going to cause you to lose. You see, we can hold on in a storm when we refocus our worship onto the treasure of God himself. See, no matter what storms may threaten or take away from us, if we are fully satisfied in Jesus, if he is the treasure of your life, is he the treasure of your life? If you have him and you know you can never lose him, then you can incur the loss of anything else. Because you know I already have the greatest treasure of all. I have God himself. 
See, when storms come, do you turn to God in worship? Or do you turn away from God and shake your fist at him in anger? Fourth, we see the anchor of God's promise for us. In verses 24 and 25, the angel stands before Paul or beside Paul and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, because I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. See, the ultimate reason that Paul is confident is he's trusting in God's promise. He has this incredible hope because he believes in God. He believes in God's promise. And he's not denying that it's going to be hard. It will be hard. He says, we're going to lose the ship, verse 26. But he says, we will all make it. We will make it because we know all things work together for good for those who love God. That gives us an anchor. And I want to tell you, you can stand and you can face any storm when you know this. Now, some of you uh, sometimes like to watch a sporting event, say, of your favorite team on DVR, right? Either you can't be there when it starts and you want to see the whole thing or something else is going on, like maybe you want to see a World Cup game and that's happening and it's happening right now while you're in church, you know, serving Jesus. And uh, sometimes when you record one of those games, right, when you do that, you don't want to hear anything about it, you know. But sometimes one of your so-called friends will think it's really funny to tell you the score of the game. That's not cool. But if that happens and you still want to watch the game, don't you watch the game in a different frame of mind? Like if your team gets behind and it's getting late into the game and it looks like there's no hope, you're calm. You're relaxed. You know how the game is going to turn out when they make mistakes and it looks like they're going to lose You don't care. Why? Because you know who wins. You know the final score. You're saying, I just can't wait to see how they come back and how we win the game. See, that's how it is for us. We can say in storms, God, I don't know why this is happening, and it hurts. But God, I cannot wait to see what you are going to do, how you are going to take me through, even in this storm. It's an anchor It's an anchor for us to hold on to. Here's the third thing that we want to see about God's faithfulness. We trust God to use our faith in him to influence others. Sometimes we're going through storms, and part of the reason we're going through storms is to influence others. Let's continue the story now. Verse 27, on the 14th night, again, catch that. They've been doing this for two weeks We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings, and this means they drop a cable with a lead weight, and they see, you know, how much cable has to fall before it hits the ocean floor, and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Verse 30, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. 
So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Although there were 276 of us on board, when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. What I love about this is just to think about how these sailors have been watching Paul and to see how his faith is now impacting them. There's kind of a little side note that you should keep in mind here. And it's simply this. Faith doesn't mean you throw reason out the door. Now, Paul says, we'll make it, but you still need to eat. You see both of these things? He he knows that God is going to get him to Rome. But earlier on, remember, he uses reason and says, we shouldn't sail now. It's a bad idea. See, faith doesn't mean you throw out common sense, that you don't use your mind. Paul's faith is influencing some people here, and some of them want to give up and take the easy way out, but he leads some others to cut the ropes, to throw the food out because they're, all, they're trusting God. Now, I think the thing I want us to focus on here is sometimes storms come into our lives for the good of others. I mean, I wish we could know we don't, but who knows how many of these sailors eventually put their faith in Jesus Christ, influenced by Paul's faith. This also, it shows us how we need each other to weather storms in life. Have you noticed in the same storm, sometimes I'll be strong and you'll be weak. Sometimes you'll be strong and I'll be weak. Have you noticed that? Sometimes we we go through storms with different uh, positions for different reasons. And when I'm strong and you're weak, I can strengthen you. And when you're strong and I'm weak, you can strengthen me. As a pastor that I knew uh, in the Chicago area when I was a pastor there. His name is Kent Hughes. He's written a lot of books. And in one of his books, he tells about a time in his life when he was just in great despair, just a really dark time in his ministry. He said, I couldn't even sense the presence of God in my life, and he didn't know what to do. He finally confessed it to his wife, and I love her response. She said to him, then hold on to my faith. I have enough faith for both of us. See, there's times when a trial may hit your spouse or your friend harder than you. And you'll be the one holding on to the promises of God. And you can influence their faith and help them have strength to carry on. And sometimes it'll be the other way around and they can do that for you. And I think the way we demonstrate faith the most is when we are willing to abandon all of our false securities, all those things that we are tempted to put our faith in. See, the soldiers, they, they cut away the boats. Uh, when Paul says, trust me, God says, it's going to happen. All the people on board, they, they eat their fill, and then they throw off the rest of the food to lighten the load because they are trusting that they are going to make it. And you need to understand that faith, in a sense, is cutting off of all other boats all your other options, 
You're just trusting God and trusting God's word. And maybe you need to ask yourself, what false securities are, are you holding on to as you go through this storm? What do you need to let go of and just put your faith in God and in God alone? Here's the last thing, number four. Uh, trust that God will vindicate our faith in the end. As this story uh, works its way toward its conclusion, what we see is God vindicating not only his words, but also his servant Paul. Verse 39 says, When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. And that's simply because we've heard this before. The soldiers lost prisoners. They themselves were executed. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life. Julius, again, is helping Paul. And he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Everyone reached land in safety. Even when they called, even when they tried to kill the prisoners... God is using the centurion to stop that and carry out his plan. God is just vindicating his word. He's vindicating his servant. It's happening exactly the way Paul was told it would happen. Now I want to show you another map just to update you on the progress so you can see how far they come. And as they've made this journey to Malta, God has vindicated Paul in preserving everyone's life. It's kind of an amazing thing to think about. Paul's presence is why everyone else was saved. In, in verse 24, it says, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So that, that kind of suggests to us that Paul was in the midst of this storm, not only praying for himself, but praying that God would spare the rest of their lives. And God answered his prayer. God spares all 276 because of the one. We see further vindication of Paul in Acts 28. Verse 1 says, Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and, as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. How many of you need to hold somebody else's hand right now? Go ahead and do that. Because he's got a snake hanging off of his hand. Uh, verse 4, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So these pagan people, uh, they often would turn in this time uh, virtues into gods or goddesses. And so this is the ju uh, goddess justice. Uh, in our 21st century terms, this is something like karma. So he gets out, the snake bites him, he must be a murderer. And they're all watching. Everybody's watching the guy with a snake on his hand. Would you be watching? I'd be watching. And they keep watching. 
But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. I mean, they're just watching him walking around. When's he going to swell up, you know? But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So he's a murderer. No, he's a god, right? Well, just put this all together. Paul has suffered imprisonment for two years. He's gone through the terror of this storm. And do not minimize that. He suffered shipwreck. And now, literally, he's snake bit. See, following God doesn't mean smooth sailing. But God does vindicate his word. And God often vindicates his servants as we trust him and follow him. God continues to vindicate Paul by giving him power to heal. Verse 7 says, There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius. I was just thinking Julius and Publius might be a good name for a hip-hop band or something. I don't know. Um, He's the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened... The rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. And so God is continuing to provide for their needs. They continue their journey. Verse 11, after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, uh, we reached, uh, I think you should say it, Putioli or something like that. It's, we're in Italy now. Sorry. Uh, verse 14, there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And then Luke says it so almost anticlimatically, And so we came to Rome. It sounds so calm, right? And yet, that's really the summation. God is vindicating his word. God is showing his faithfulness. Uh, Verse 15, the brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now, we'll complete the story next week and see uh, what's happening to Paul in Rome, but I want to show you a final map today to show uh, the completion of the journey. And as you look at that map, I just want to ask you, why does Luke record this incredible journey? There is a purpose. Paul could demonstrate his faith, and he could influence others, And he himself was being shaped in this trial. He was growing in his ability to trust God. And we need to be reminded about that because we are a people that is so interested in the destination and just getting there. And you could even think, why not just skip Acts 27 and tell us that he got to Rome? But you need to be reminded, God is far more interested in our transformation along the way. God wants to use the storms of life to make us more like Jesus. See, why is Acts 27 there? Well, all are brought safely to the land. God wants us to know. What do we see in Acts 28? Well, God fulfills his promise 
and brings Paul to Rome. You know, how could Paul worship God in the midst of this incredible storm? Well, it really boils down to this. He was trusting in God's word. He was clinging to God's promises. And I'm here to tell you today, you can still do the same thing whenever you go through life's storms. And when we do that, when we trust in God and trust in his faithfulness as we go through life's storms, whether it's through a lot of pain or through a lot of tears, we can get to the point, friends, hear me, when we look adversity in the face and we can say, you don't scare me. I've seen your face before, but I know my God will deliver me. And I may weep and my heart may be broken on the ground. And I may sometimes just want to cut the ropes and quit, but I am putting my faith in God and God will renew my strength and God will take me through this storm. You know, you cannot control the storms. You never know when they're going to come. And when they come, there's often very little you can do about them. You can't control when you get that phone call telling you someone you love has died. You can't control that moment when a doctor looks you in the face and tells you it's cancer. You cannot control the accidents that sometimes just spring into your life, but what you can know is that God is in control in those moments, and when those storms come, you can know that God is always faithful to his promises. Here's what I'm going to leave you with. If we are followers of Christ, we have an ultimate promise. And this is the promise we ultimately hold on to in every storm. One day, we're going to step into eternity, away from all sin, away from all pain, away from all storms. And in the presence of God, we will be completely fulfilled, completely satisfied, completely filled with joy. And do you know why we can have that promise? It's because one day someone else went through a storm. Jesus, God's only son, he also faced prison. He also faced trials. He also faced persecution. And yes, he was also bitten by a snake. And for three hours on one Friday, darkness covered the land and the perfect storm of God's holy wrath was poured out on his son for our sin, for your sin and my sin. But when that storm passed, Jesus walked out of the tomb alive forevermore, carrying the message of salvation. And that message is for those of us in storms, people like you and me, maybe people who right now have no hope, maybe someone who just wants to cut the ropes and quit, those who have been bitten time and time again by the serpent of sin. Jesus offers us Good news. He offers us hope. He says to you, he says to me, I am with you in the storm. I will never leave you or forsake you. I promise you, child of mine, you will arrive safely at home. God's always faithful, even in life storms. And so, child of God, I want to tell you today, you can trust him today. And if you are here today and you are not yet God's child, I want to tell you 
today. You can trust him today. You can turn from your sin in repentance. And you can believe that Jesus is God's son and that he can forgive your sins if you will allow him to. Hear the word of the Lord given to us today. Receive the faithfulness of God, which he offers to each one of us as we go through life's storms. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are faithful. Even when storms come, you are with us. In fact, you tell us, Father, you are near to the brokenhearted. We just thank you that we have that hope, that promise that we belong to you if we're your children, and that there is no storm that ever comes into our lives unless you are using it for uh, your purposes. Lord, we thank you for the ultimate hope we have that those storms come one day, we're going to step into eternity with you and we're never going to face a storm again. We love you, Father. We hold on to the hope you offer us. And Lord, we also want to pray, if there is anyone here right now who doesn't know you, we ask that they would repent of their sin and their unbelief. And Lord, you would grant them faith in your son, Jesus Christ. May they receive you even today, Father. If someone is here in the midst of a storm or maybe just walking into a storm, God, help them to hold on to the anchor that is Jesus. We pray all these things in his precious, holy, and strong name, the name of Jesus and all God's people said.